Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon, founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees, and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. Our team of JBD coaches support men and women to engage in divorce with more calm, clarity, and confidence through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. How much do you really want this to be okay for your kids or do you enjoy the conflict? Because if you're really motivated and say, yeah, the next negotiation, I might be wanting something. So how I treat them this time is going to matter the next time. And why do I want something? If Hopefully it's because it's good for my child. So when people say, well, she doesn't deserve my respect or, okay, that might be true. But your kids deserve this. <laughs> so it really kind of tests whether or not their motivation is for the kids. In fact, in the journal, in the introduction, one of the things I say is don't even start in this journey until you're absolutely ready. Um, sometimes people aren't ready until they've been beaten down enough that they're just exhausted. And then they say, okay, I think I'm ready to do something differently. Welcome to All Things Parenting, where we introduce you to experts who share proven approaches to parenting, co-parenting, and step-parenting that we were never taught and need now more than ever. Parenting is one of the most important and difficult roles we take on. And even with married parents, it's by no means an easy job. Divorcing parents are faced with the added trauma of divorce, the overwhelming exhaustion from single parenting, the wide-ranging, thorny challenges of co-parenting, and the monumental effort needed when you enter into a blended family with hers, his, ours, and all the exes. We need rock-solid skills, approaches, guidance, and support, and that's what All Things Parenting is designed to offer. Welcome back to our All Things Parenting series. And today we're discussing a six-step process to negotiating co-parenting disagreements. After you are done with your divorce, it is so important to step off the battlefield, remove your coat of armor, and begin the process of navigating a new relationship with your ex. And a big part of that, for those of us who have children, is how do we begin to discuss areas of parenting where we disagree without finding ourselves back armored up and on the battlefield. And with me today, I have two experts um, who are going to share some wisdom and a process that they um, teach people that works really well. And so a little bit about our guests. Um, I have Diane Dirks. 
who is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Georgia. She's uh, the executive director of the Center for Navigating Family Change and co-host of the podcast Co-Parent Dilemmas. And her co-host, Rick Voiles, uh, who is CEO of the Center for Dispute Solutions, is a published author, mediator, and anger management specialist. I am really excited about today's conversation. Welcome. Welcome. Well, thank you for, for having, having us. us. Yeah. 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 So you guys talk about this all the time. And for those of you who are regular podcasters, uh, definitely add to your list uh, the podcast Co-Parent Dilemmas. Um, and I know you talk about like very specific things and you, which is great. You take in listeners uh, questions and you really hash them out. And so today I'm excited to hear what the six step process is that can really help people as they finally wrap up their divorce and try and uh, do this relationship with their ex differently. Sure. First thing, you know, you said something, Karen, that intrigued me, take off that armor. And uh, I I used to say to clients, take remove the battery that's you've been running on for so long through the court process, put it in a closet and let it kind of die down, you know, because yep. it's really hard after a court process. And I don't care whether it's amicable or high conflict or whatever, you're pretty amped up. And especially if you have attorneys involved. And so it, to go from that to, okay, now I'm running a business with the person who just sued me. <laughs> it's not an easy transition to make. So uh, a lot of what we do is talk about how to take that emotion and kind of begin to uh, overshadow it with your logic. And so the six-step six process that we uh, talk about really is a logical way of working through some of the emotions when a conflict comes up because you're likely to be triggered back into that wanting to put the armor back on? How do I protect myself from those old feelings that came up for me? Yep. Yeah, it's like, I mean, court is by basically definition an adversarial process. So how do you go from being adversaries with the armor on to protect yourself and also using tactics to be offensive to hurt or attack the other person in order to win. How do you move from that uh, adversarial stance to one of uh, collaborating in some sort of goals around our shared interests of children's well-being? Yeah. And like Rick and I always say, you know, this is easy and almost cliche to say, let's just think about the children's best interests. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, <laughs> in fact, that's exactly what people fight about. Right. <laughs> right. right. You know, um, yeah, there are some people out there that are just completely self-involved and all they care about is their own interests. But we find that most parents, their perspective is I am fighting for my child's best interests. We just don't right. agree on, on what those are. And I think those are honest conflicts. You know, my my values, the way I was brought up, the way I think about children, this is how I believe we should do it. And the other parent is saying, well, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I believe something right. else. And that can feel like a hopeless impasse if you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So and I love that you use the word business. So it's interesting. You said get to, down to the business of so that immediately, you know, when we're in our business head, um, hopefully it's less emotional than when we're yes. in our personal head. And so just before you dive into the six, what is... Tell our, our listeners about that concept of 
look at this, engage with this as a as more of a business? Well, if you think about it from a business model, and Rick can probably talk about this better than I can because he's more the business mind in this partnership. But um, I think that when you have a business, you have a plan. You know, and oftentimes in our organization, we have a lot of parenting coordinators. And one of the things we ask them to do, each of them, is to say, think in their minds, what do I want my kids to say about me 10 years from now? Mm-hmm. And then how do I get there? And, and when you think of it in those ways, you're in, invariably parents say, I want my child to say that my mom always listened to me no matter what my dad was doing, or my dad never said bad things, uh, you know, about my other parent to me. They never, my dad never put me in the middle of a conflict, conflict, or he always took me out of the conflict. We never, ever hear anyone say, boy, I'm glad that my dad had control of those passports because if he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have been okay. Or good thing mom had spring break in 2023 because if she hadn't had spring break, I probably would have had trauma, you know? And when you put it in that perspective, what is your real goal? And when you think about a business, we develop a mission statement. We develop goals and objectives to get to that mission yep. statement. So we sort of make them write out, what is my mission statement? The mission statement is in, in 10 years from now, I want to overhear my kids say to their best friend, yeah, divorce sucked, but good thing my mom was there because had I not had her support or had she not supported me in all my activities or had she not done this or that, I wouldn't have gotten through it okay. And so they get hyper-focused on the emotional issue of the day instead of what is the long game? What is the long-term goal for us? And how, so we always tell them, you know, when they come up with these arguments, how does this fit your mission statement? Beautiful. And then they they look at you like, well, I guess it doesn't, but I still want to fight about it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, so let's dive into the uh, six-step process. Okay. Um, it's, we call it dragon. We wanted people to remember it easily. Um, actually, I started putting together, you know, how uh, Rick and I actually go through conflict, whether we're sitting at a table in the organization staffing problems, you know, staffing cases, or whether we're doing the podcast, we tend to go through the same thing. How do we how do we define the dilemma? That's the D. Uh, how do we reframe it or help the client reframe how they view the other parent in this dilemma? Uh, whose anxiety are we trying to manage? Is it our own anxiety? Is it our child's anxiety? What is the goal for our children? What are some opportunities, which we'll get into this a lot, which is what can I do even if I can't get the right answer from my, my co-parent? And then finally, that leads me to negotiate. And so it's all about kind of, I would call it because I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist primarily, I would call it a cognitive behavioral way of getting from point A where I'm fighting mad <laughs> to the, what's the six letter? A, B, C, D. Point F, I'm trying to count letters here, point <laughs> F, uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to walk into a negotiation with a peaceful mind or write the email with a peaceful mind because I, I know what I'm going to do even if he or she says no way. And that's, that frees you from the anxiety and the stress of the conflict. So that last piece, I'm I'm going to hold off on. I know what I'm going to do regardless. I'm going to I'm going to put that on the shelf for a second. So, 
what I'm hearing is the entire six steps happen before you engage with the other person. Absolutely. It might even happen before you write the response to the nasty email, which is why you have to develop the habit because, uh, you know, I always say, if you want to lose 20 pounds, you're going to read all kinds of things online about diets and, you know, how to eat and you write it all down and you start a journal and, you know, you go to the grocery and you buy all the good food. That's the easy part. (laughs) The hard part is actually changing your mindset about waking up the next day and actually doing it. The plan is easy to formulate. Sounds good on paper. And so Rick and I realized that when we do the podcast, people hear it and go, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. We experience in our classes when we teach classes for the court, people come up and say, oh, this is great. Love this information. And we know that five minutes later out in the parking lot, they are getting a text from their ex (laughs) and it's as if they didn't hear a thing we said. And it's kind of like the diet plan. I put it all together. I wake up the next morning and that chocolate muffin is screaming at me and I eat it even though I just made my plan. So, so the only way to do this really is to practice, practice training your brain to go through these steps before you do anything in communication. Yeah, I love this. And and so I've, I've just been talking to a couple of clients who are like, nothing's working. And it all came down to you're listening, you're taking notes, you're reading your notes, you're not practicing. Right. You're actually like when I'd say, so what, how, how did it go when you, oh, I didn't. Well, if you don't, then it's good information that's never applied. And if I right. put you in front of a piano and just told you to read the notes and, and memorize them, chances are your fingers wouldn't be any better at what you were doing. Yeah. And so, yeah. so this is great. So this, for those of you listening, this is, um, this is a practice. And what I love about this practice that you're about to talk about is it brings a, a, a high level of consciousness and intentionality to the table. So it's like, yeah. if you just have that, but then you don't practice it, it doesn't work. But if you put them all together, what is your experience with clients or, or people who really roll up their sleeves and practice this on a regular basis? They say, thank you. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had clients we've had, you know, we do a lot of parenting coordination in our, in our uh, organization And the goal of parenting coordination is not to get parents to be cooperative because they wouldn't be coming to us through the court if they were cooperative. So we kind of take the stance they're probably never going to get there. If they do, great. You know, that's a a lofty goal. But if they get there, we're happy for them. But that's not the goal we set for them. If they get to the parallel style, we're happy. But most of the time we're working with the parent that we identify who's ready to change um, and who's ready who's motivated to make this better, or maybe sometimes it's the parent who doesn't have the personality disorder, or it's the parent who really does seem to care about the kids' welfare more than their own. And if we can identify that person, we tend to focus on getting them to start these habits. And what happens, sometimes the other parent gets so frustrated because they're in a box and they don't like being in a box, they quit. And they don't care whether the court wanted them to do it or not, they just quit or they stop paying or whatever, but invariably we'll get, we'll get emails or cards or letters from the parent that was taught who said that changed my whole life because one parent was able to do it differently. And we gave that parent permission to not get sucked into the vortex every time. And so 
the experience is sometimes you can only help one parent, but that's enough. And I think that message needs to be amplified to the listeners as well, because I say that all the time, even if you only have one parent who's being conscious, who's keeping the children in the center, who's really being intentional about, you know, how important is it? Is this worth, you know, really fighting for? If you only have one, your children can emerge so much healthier. Um, And so that because you can so easily focus on the parent who isn't, which is a fairly uh, impotent focus, I find. Sure. So one of the things we might do here is, you know, give you an example. People like examples. We can talk theoretically about a lot of things, but if we don't walk through a specific example, which is why we did the journal the way that we did, you listen to this story and then let's talk about how we help them. And then let's you write down how you might do a similar thing in a situation you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. So we had um, trying to think, Rick, where we got this question. It may have been one of the classes we were teaching a Dad, who was very frustrated because uh, he lived maybe, I don't know, 45 minutes away from mom and where the child primarily lived. And mom had final say on activities. And the dad was very frustrated because she was signing the child up on activities that were even further from her house, putting him, you know, almost an hour away from the activities and, you know, the, the, the baseball game, I can't remember what activity, but we'll call it baseball. The baseball game started at six, he didn't get off work till five 30. He wasn't sure he was going to be able to make it across town and traffic. You know, we, it was in Atlanta. So Atlanta traffic is famous for, you know, 10 miles can take you <laughs> 10 hours to get there. So he was claiming she was trying to alienate him from the child by purposely signing the child up for a different you know, venue than he could possibly make. And sometimes he had to work on Saturdays and, you know, how am I going to, my son is going to hate me because I'm never going to be able to be there for that. You know, he, so that's all the emotional stuff. So if we look at that um, and, you know, we hear this a lot that the accusation is the mom is purposely trying to cut me out. Now that could be true. But it's not always true. The mom's excuse was that her son wanted to play baseball with his cousin who happened to live on the you know other side of her. Right. So, of course, we always hear the two stories and they always sound plausible. Right. 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 right, right. So where do you go with that? You know, and he was ready to go to court. I'm going to get final say on activities because that's what I deserve, you know, if she's the kind of person who really was trying to alienate him, I don't care what you have final say on whatever, she's still going to do the alienation, right? You know, so we always try to tell people court can be an answer, but it's not all, it shouldn't be the first option that you go to because it's a gamble. It's very risky. You know, what you think a judge might do because you're so mad, you might be sorely disappointed $10,000 later or 20 or 30 (laughs) that that's not really what I thought it was going to get. So I think we start with the dilemma. How do you describe the dilemma? So what happened? Who did what? Why is it a dilemma for you and your child? And so I kind of already explained that, right? He feels like he's not going to be able to support his child in this activity. And he feels that mom is, this is just the first of many things to come where mom is going to keep him from his child. So then we talk about the R, the reframe. And this has to do with 
not, you know, people get upset with us sometimes when we say, give the other parent the benefit of the doubt. So let's talk about um, the reframe. And um, you were saying that sometimes when you even bring up the concept of a reframe, it's taken the wrong way. There's a Sure, a, especially a if, some, if someone has felt that they were emotionally abused in the relationship and there's continued emotional abuse. When we say give the other parent the benefit of the doubt, that feels like I'm allowing them to continue to abuse me. Um, our idea of reframe is to put your mind in the right place. Is there another way that I can look at this parent, what they might be attempting to do, maybe even take the excuse they give as um, at face value and say, okay, I'll accept that merely so that you can communicate better. And this is where we say, fake it, even if you can't respect it, <laughs> because if you don't, you're going to say things that will shut the communication right down. How, am, how would I communicate with this person if I really believed what they said? Well, he just wanted to play with his cousin. So I'm, I'm more likely to say, hey, um, yeah, I hear that Johnny wants to play baseball with his cousin. That's great. I'm so glad that he and his cousin have a good relationship. You know, that is a better start to a communication than I can't believe you're doing this to me again. <laughs> Okay. So you have to begin thinking like a business person would, you know, if I needed to tell Rick something, although we're probably more friends than business partners, but, you know, I'm probably not going to lash out because I have a motivation to keep the relationship going. I'm probably, even though I might feel a certain way, I might change my tone to something more respectful and give him the benefit of the doubt to encourage him to stay in the conversation with me. And this step is probably the hardest step for everyone. But you don't know his history. Well, I get it. But that was your relationship history. Right. And Rick, what do you always say about your next your next negotiation is only as good as I always forget what your quote is about that. Right. The next your all future negotiation is based upon how badly you treated the person in the in the last negotiation. <laughs> so if you, and this is where the rubber hits the road with a lot of people that we work with, we, we really kind of test how much do you really want this to be okay for your kids or do you enjoy the conflict? Because if you're really motivated and say, yeah, the next negotiation, I might be wanting something. So how I treat them this time is right. going to matter the next time. And why do I want something? If Hopefully it's because it's good for my child. So when people say, well, she doesn't deserve my respect or, okay, that might be true, but your kids deserve this. <laughs> so it really kind of tests whether or not their motivation is for the kids. In fact, in the journal, in the introduction, one of the things I say is don't even start in this journey until you're absolutely ready Um Sometimes people aren't ready until they've been beaten down enough that they're just exhausted. And then they say, okay, I think I'm ready to do something differently. Yeah. Because they keep trying their own way. They keep trying their own thing. They keep fighting like they did in the relationship and realize this is worse than it was before. You know, you know what I love about the reframe too, Diane, is if you think about it, um, if you're, if you're, 
launching a rocket, they spend so much time making sure that the angle, while it's still on the ground, is pointed in the right direction. So it's not going to completely miss the planet or wherever it's going. And if you're starting a negotiation and that reframe is what an idiot, he, this, or she, that, well, then you're going sideways before you even begin. And for me, I think that one of the things that's so interesting when, when we've been locked in is at first, sometimes people can't even see another perspective. It's like, well, there is only this perspective. What other perspective could there be? And just that practice of, okay, what are a couple of other options for reframing just sounds Sounds like it would expand somebody's ability to step into that conversation um, with a with a healthier perspective. Yeah. We're not asking you to feel differently. We're just asking you to behave differently, <laughs> speak right. differently. And you know, Rick and I have had these people in our classes say, "Well, I'm not going to be fake." <laughs> You're fake all the time. Look what happens at Thanksgiving dinner every year. <laughs> you sit around with all those family members that drive you nuts. And right. unless, well, maybe not in New York, I don't know. But in the South, <laughs> we fake it. <laughs> with a smile pasted on your face. <laughs> exactly. Or how often do you fake it at work when you can't stand your coworker, but, you know, you value your job. So even though you don't want to have to be nice to them, you, you do it, or, you know, you you think your boss is an idiot, but you don't treat him like one because you want a paycheck. So if, if your kids aren't valuable enough to do this, then I probably can't work for you right. or with you, you know? So first we define the issue and then we, um, take a look at our perspective and reframe it if it's not serving us right, or serving the conversation that needs to happen. And then I think once we kind of say, okay, this is what I need to do with regard to my communication, then we have to really dig deep. And, you know, some of these steps can be turned around. You may have to deal with your anxiety first before you do the reframe. Rick, why don't you talk a little bit about that anxiety piece? Because some people get mixed up their own anxiety versus their anxiety about their children, or it's all intertwined, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Typically what's happening to the parent who's getting upset and defensive is what the other parent is doing. If it continues is going to lead to a very negative future. It's going to, if, if the other parent keeps doing this, I'm going to lose my child. Either my child's going to hate me, whatever that picture is that they have, they can't stand it. And therefore they must do something to stop this from happening. And so part of the anxiety is what, what are you most fearful of? What is it that if, if something doesn't change, you can't, uh, you can't have happen. And that's where that anxiety comes in. What's the worst case scenario if things, something doesn't change? Uh, both for yourself, and that's usually what the trigger of the negative response is, I've got to stop this person from ruining my life. That's what they mm-hmm. see is happening in the future. So let's address that. Well, what, what might happen? Yeah. All right, what can we do about it? What are the other things that we might be able to address? What is it that I want to make sure doesn't happen? And that sets us up for the goal. Then what is the goal then really for myself and for my child and typically for my relationship with my child becomes 
one of those uh, focal points. So the in this particular scenario, we started the goal for dad was that he wanted to be able to enjoy his son playing baseball. He wanted to experience it with him. He wanted his son to feel supported by him. All very good goals, normal, you know, but he was telling himself through all this anxiety that she was going to keep him from doing that. And so that leads then to the opportunity, which we call a plan B because plan A is the negotiated answer. (laughs) Plan A is when you ask for something and they say, yes, of course, (laughs) or, you know, you can easily negotiate it. Plan B is what am I going to do when the person that has the power says, nope, can I still achieve my goal? And this guy did something that I thought was pretty awesome. And you have to have your head straight in order to think of these things. You can't create options out of fear fear or when your brain is anxious or when all you can think of is how horrible she is or he is. What he did was said, you know, I knew some of the other parents um, of my kids' friends and, you know, whatever it was, an aunt or an uncle or someone who could wanted to go see the game or, and he asked them if he, they wouldn't mind on the games he couldn't make or the games that where he was going to be late, that they would uh, videotape his son while he was up at bat or while he was in the outfield. And he, and probably the most important thing he did was he sat down with his son he didn't blame mom. He said, you know what? I, because I think it's great you want to play with your cousin. Uh, he may have looked at his dad with a hollow look because he was like, what are you talking about? Because mom might have been lying. We don't know. But he said it anyway because he knows kids will say something to the mom about it. You know, I think it's great you want to play with your cousin. And But you know where my job is and what my schedule is. I might not be able to make all the games or the practices. But I talked to Miss So-and-so and she said she's happy to use her phone and videotape you and send them to me so that when you come over on the weekend, we're going to view those videotapes together so we can look at how you're batting and then we'll practice some of that stuff with you. And he said his son was fine with that. Now, that's something he doesn't need mom's permission for. Sometimes the best plan B is talking to your child. We had another mom who was frustrated because um, she wanted her child to be able to attend all the birthday parties. Her child was an age, I don't know, eight or nine years old, where there's like a birthday party every weekend, right? Yes. <laughs> Someone in the class. <laughs> and um, so his best friend was going to have a birthday party, but it was on dad's time. And dad never, ever let him go to sleepovers or birthday parties or anything, because that's my time. And that was very frustrating to her. So she would find herself begging, you know, please let him go. He really wants to go to this birthday party. I'll pick him up. I'll take him to the birthday party. I'll bring him back. I'll even go to Walmart and buy the gift, you know, just please, please, please. And dad loved saying no to the begging. (laughs) And so he would say no. And this particular time, the child came home and said, you know, hand the mom the invitation. And he said, well, it's on dad's time. He probably won't let me go. And mom in her wisdom said, you're probably right. I'll still let him know about it and we'll see what he says. But if dad says no, 
I'll call this little boy's mom and we'll have on my weekend, we'll have a special birthday party for him. And you can invite a couple of your important friends. I'll make him a cake. You can get and you can still honor your friend's birthday. And she said he just lit up. Now, is that a perfect solution? No. Is he going to get to go to the birthday party with everybody else? No. But what he'll remember that the rest of his life, that when dad shut him down or wouldn't let him do just life as a kid, Mom came up with alternative solutions. And what a great lesson to teach our kids. When you can't get everything you want, what's what's the workaround? How can we get something of what we want? But it, a parent has to be able to focus on what does my child need? Not what, what, not what do I need for my child? Those are two different things. Right. I need for my child to have a parent who parents just like me. Well, good luck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But if you think about what does my child really need, he needs two parents who can unconditionally love him. And oftentimes the other one can't for whatever reason. And so tag, you're it. You know, if, if you do that, then all the research tells us if kids get at least one of those growing up, that can save their little souls. So, you know, so if that sounds easy, well, yeah, that's, those are perfect solutions, but the hardest part to getting there is changing your mindset. So now yeah, mom's ready to negotiate. Hey, by the way, Johnny has a birthday party. And if you don't want him to go, that's fine. I just thought I'd let you know. And when dad says, no, you know, I won't let him do this is my time, you know, and then she can just ignore. Okay. Thanks. Because I already know what I'm going to do. Plan B's are brilliant. I I talk about plan B's all the time. I was in a 12 step program and, you know, it was something that was hammered in like, you know, where do you have control? And so your, 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 Oh, like what's the opportunity. And, and there's so many opportunities in the, Oh, right. Because there's the creative solution, the empowerment of the child, the empowerment of the parent who feels like, they don't have control in the situation and just the creative thinking, because then what happens to the child who actually is invited into that conversation and starts creating plan B's like that catapult them into a life where it's like obstacle, no problem. I've got to work around. Absolutely. And that takes him right out of the conflict. He's not, he's not losing sleep tonight because what's wrong with my parents? (laughs) Why can't they figure this out? It's very difficult to lose a negotiation when you have a plan B in place. Yeah. Yeah. Can you just say that again? It's very difficult to lose a negotiation when you have a plan B in place. I think that's such a powerful statement. And it really does. It just like amplifies that plan B plan B's rule. Yeah. (laughs) They're like really, really good to have. And I bet Karen, you could think of some, even in your high conflict personal situation where you had to find another way to get your kids what they wanted. And so I think if parents really think about good parents do it without realizing they do it. So access that, wisdom that you already have. Uh, Emotions can stunt our wisdom. You know, when we get too emotional, we forget, wait a minute, I've done this before. I know how to do this already. I know how to focus on what my child needs. I'm not going to let him or her throw me off of that balance. 
Well, so and, and I, I love, I just want to say on that point, like earlier on, you're doing that reframe, which really helps get you out of that anger um, that, um, you know, your amygdala where you're just like you're fighting or you're running yeah. or something. It, it brings you back to, to your logical brain, your frontal cortex, where you actually have access to all that creativity. Yeah. And so the reframe on the front end of this, and then the opportunities, um, I mean, it's it's a such a beautiful six step process, and it makes so much sense that it's going to be completely useless if you don't practice it. Right, right. If you miss some steps in there, you're going to go back to your old ways. You, you know. One of the things then this this creates for us is it takes our eyes off of the other parent because. When we don't get some sort of cooperation, we start to feel powerless and we're literally giving our power away to the other parent when we start to feel stuck. But now if you have a plan B and you have an ability to communicate and negotiate, then you can provide for your kid, like you were pointing out, Karen, examples and you can model for them so that if the other parent doesn't do the right thing, or let's go so far into say, when the other parent will not do the right thing. It gives me the opportunity to get even closer to my child, to bond with my child, to work through those difficult emotions that they're having with the other parent So and problem solve. So it's almost as though, and this might be a bit of an exaggeration, but it's almost as though you could thank the other parent for being a bad parent because you continually give me opportunity on top of opportunity on top of opportunity to give our child exact, to be the one to give our child exactly what they need. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny that you say that and it's true. And, and, um, the danger is, uh, that so many parents want to, even if they want to do that, they also want to let little Johnny know who's at fault. And right. I, if you guys could just speak to that a little bit, because I think that there's this natural, even though none of us as parents want to admit it, it's like, I want them to know that I'm the better parent. I want them to be on my side. I want them to know that daddy or mommy's a jerk. And yeah. so let's speak to that a little bit, because that's the, that undertow, that right. undercurrent that we want to try and get rid of. So the dad says to Johnny, I'm not buying you those new Nike shoes. That's what child support is for. <laughs> so, yes, exactly. So Johnny, so Johnny goes to mom. Let's make Johnny 14. I don't know. Mom, Johnny goes to mom and says, dad said, I can't get the Nike shoes because you pay, you get the child support. And then she freaks out and says, well, did your dad tell you he hasn't paid me for the last two months? And then Johnny's like, geez. And here's a kid who's going to walk away pretty angry and go search out his friends because yeah. these parents are not, they don't get me. They don't understand my needs. And, and I want, getting advice from your 14 year old friends, friends is never a good idea. Exactly. <laughs> so I want mom to say, can she control that dad throws him into that conflict and says bad thing that your mom doesn't buy you things she needs with child support or whatever. I want mom to say to Johnny, I'm sorry that your dad put you in the middle of that. This is an adult issue. You might not get the $100 Nikes because it depends on our budget, our budgets, um, but you will get new shoes. You'll get the shoes you need. Don't worry about it. I'll talk to your dad about it and walk away. She doesn't have to defend herself. And we talk a lot of that. That's why people say negative things is in their own defense. They want their kids to see them in a better light. 
all that does, it's destructive on a few levels. It's destructive in that it keeps the child stuck. It's destructive because the child then has to wonder, the two people in the world he counts on and loves the most, he has to wonder which one of them is a liar. And then he also has to question, well, if dad's a jerk, what does that make me? Because I'm half dad. So there's, there's nothing productive for the child at all in that. And learn that and teach it to your family members, because I don't care who says it. You, you can have the worst relationship with a parent, but if someone gets upset and says something bad about them, you're going to defend them. So yep. we all have learned that. Well, I think it's time. I haven't put my toe in the water of saying negative things about the other parent. I think I'll do that now that my child's an adult. And they'll probably go, wait a minute, I'm allowed to talk badly about them, but nobody else or not. So why? Because I'm, I'm connected. My identity is wrapped up in this person. Every time I look in the mirror, I see this person. So as much as I've been frustrated and annoyed by my parent, <laughs> I still need to think they're okay for my own sense of self-worth. And so it's complicated in a child's mind. So people mm -hmm. that do that flippantly have no idea the multiple uh, issues they're creating for their child. I'd love to ask a question along those lines. I, I come from the high conflict um, side of things. Uh, my kids are now 24 and 26. They were about four and six when I sat them down to tell them I was leaving. And um, and so what do you do when you have uh, a co-parent who kind of really shares way too much with the children and um and bashes the other parent. Uh, and I'll, I'll share what I did, but I, I would love to hear, um, because I, I have those parents as clients and they're like, but they're only getting one side and I'm, I'm looking so bad and yeah. they're saying all these things. And if I don't defend myself, then what? Yeah. Um, and what would you say to those parents? your friends and loved ones deeply care about you. But if you're honest, while they mean well, when it comes to your divorce, they just don't get it. And sometimes you leave those conversations feeling even more isolated. If you're lonely and craving connection and support, check out our high conflict divorce support group, where an intimate group of 12 people gather from the comfort of their homes to hear, see, and encourage each other while our JBD team of coaches provide emotional support and practical guidance. There's no reason to take this journey alone. If you've been yearning for support, go to journeybeyonddivorce.com backslash HCDSG and register today. Johnny comes home and says to you, dad, mom says you have blue hair. She can't stand your blue hair. And dad's going, what? Look, look, look at my hair. It's brown. <laughs> what do you see? And 
We act like our children are idiots. They're not. I don't care what anybody says about you. What they experience with their own eyes and ears around you is what matters. So we always tell parents to say to kids, I'm sorry you got stuck in that, or I'm sorry your dad did that, or your mom said that to you. You're going to have to judge me by what you know about me, not by what you hear about me. And that's a, um, that's a good lesson in life, you know, and do you want your friends to judge you because they believe something they saw on social media? No, I want my friends to judge me by how I treat them. Of course you do. So be careful that you're not believing. Now it's harder for kids because I'm believing a person I'm supposed to trust. Right. So that's hard. So another thing you can say is, you know, when two parents get a divorce, they have very different perceptions about the other and I'm sorry your mom decided to give you her perception, but the problem with that is if I tell you mine and she tells you hers, you're going to be struggling with who's lying and who's telling the truth. We're probably both a little right and both a little wrong. And I'm sorry this is so difficult. And that's better than the defense. They're going to go, okay, mom gets it. Dad gets it. Um, even though it still feels bad there at least is some explanation. It's why when kids demand to know why you're getting a divorce, I have to know every sort of detail. <laughs> you say the same thing. Well, I could tell you, but then you'd probably take that story to the other parent and then they'll tell you their perception. And it's one of the reasons we're divorced. We don't tend to agree on the perceptions of reality. <laughs> and then you're going to be stuck wondering which one of us is telling the truth. And that is nowhere for a kid to be. I don't want you to be kept awake at night by that. I don't want you to be thinking about that while you're at school. I want you to know that we both love you and we're going to be better apart than we were together. And so don't you worry about it. That doesn't make them feel warm and fuzzy. That doesn't make them go, oh, that makes perfect sense. Thank you, mom. They may even run off and slam their door because you won't give them all the details, but that's because they're immature. And you just, just like when you, they want to watch a rated R movie, you say no, because you're 10, they may slam their door because they're mad at you. But later on they realize, oh yeah, I didn't need to be protected from that. Yeah. And you well, know, I don't, you know, go ahead what we hear a lot is I, I need, my child needs to know the truth either mm -hmm. about the other parent or about the divorce. And what we also like to say is the truth is not the asset you think it is with your, with your children. Mm -hmm. And when Diane does those responses back, they're the truth, right? I mean, we, you want to know what happened. Well, your dad and I don't agree on what happened. That's the truth. That's the truth. And you can say all of that without going into all of those terrible details, which creates the dilemma for the child. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I understand our desire and the power we think truth has, but it's not always what the child needs to hear. And if you think right. about it, you know, one of the, the scenarios we use when we're talking about this, that's kind of funny, but think about it. If you are the child hearing this, you know, mom tells you we're getting a divorce because your dad slept with another woman, you know, mental pictures, ugh, you know, kid doesn't <laughs> really need to hear that, but people do this all the time. Yes. So the child frantically, you know, tell, goes to dad and says, dad, mom said that, you know, you cheated. Is that what happened? Well, did she tell you that she's an alcoholic? <laughs> well, no. So that's really why, you know, if you know, I had to cheat. And then he goes back to mom and goes, well, dad says it's because you're an alcoholic. And she goes, well, of course I drink. I live with my cheating husband. 
<laughs> and this poor kid has a head full of stuff that he should and not be. And, and he's thinking, great, you know, one parent's a cheating liar and the other one's a drunk. <laughs> Where does and, where's and, my safety? And I'm, and I'm you know? part of both of them. Like, which right. says what about me? Oh my and, god! And no, yesterday I thought I was safe in this house, and overnight my world is turned upside down, and I don't know who yeah. I can trust. Do not think that that has a small impact on a child. It has a very large impact for many, many years. You know, what I learned in my own situation is I didn't have to tell the details. My kids eventually found out through their own little investigations and then came to me when they were in their 20s, one of my children, and said, so I found this out. And is this true? And by that time, it was 15, 20 years post-divorce. I was in a much better headspace to talk to my adult child rationally about, yeah, but what you need to understand is that here's what was going on in our marriage. And, you know, I've, I've gone to therapy. I've figured out my part in that. And, you know, don't judge your dad now by that because we're two very different people now. I was in a so much better place to be able to discuss that. You know, a month out of the gate, you know, I was ready to kill him. So, you know, there's that's the worst time to decide you're going to talk to your kids about what happened in your marriage. We also say that if you know anything about brain, the brain, and I'm kind of a brain nerd, that our brain, when we go through something that feels traumatic and our world is turned upside down, our brain goes and searches that for that confirmation bias, right? That goes searches for events and things that uphold my belief or validate me. And we will even exaggerate our situations, change memories. The brain is an amazing organ to support ourselves just to get through the divorce. You don't want to talk to those, your kids about those things because give it about five years and you'll laugh at yourself and you go, well, yeah, I kind of exaggerated. That's this is yeah. what I told all of my friends because I wanted their support so right. badly. But now that I've had time to really explore it, I realize that wasn't the complete truth. I was kind of a bad actor at times as well. And so don't tell your kids those exaggerated truths because that hurts them and only helps you. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So this is this is such a great process to go into it like it's a business transaction to to really get get clear on what the problem is, to uh, take a look at your perspective and see if it needs to be reframed to really get a sense of who's whose fear, whose anxiety, mine, my child's needs addressing. Um to, to set a goal of how do you want to walk away from this this issue? I love the the opportunity, the plan B, and then to enter into the writing of the email or the negotiation and like going back to that that rocket launch. Now you're so set up for success. And the other thing that I just want to comment on, Diane, as you were just going through the example. Um, you were even so incredibly neutral. And I want our listeners to notice that, 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 you know, dad has his perspective. I have my perspective um, and really start stepping away from all the judgment and the right or wrong. Um, or one of my coaches on my team, uh, her saying is, uh, 
always assume best intention, which I love, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think that especially stepping off of the divorce battlefield, it's like guns are still blaring, emotional grenades are still going across the room and best intention is nowhere in the neighborhood, you know? Yeah. So all of those things are great. And then um, Rick, your statement about truth's value um, being limited, uh, I think is so important as we're especially talking to young children and talking um, right out of divorce, those first few raw years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes courts will order people to, you've got one week to go to parenting <laughs> coordination, you know, and I've had to tell judges, will you give that a month? <laughs> Because a week later, after the trial ends, <laughs> we can't do much with that. I think people need at least a month to maybe not talk to each other for a month. Let that battery yeah. kind of, you know, lose some of its juice. Uh, like you said, start taking the armor off, you know, uh, right out of the gate. People want to start fighting because they're mad they didn't get what they wanted in court, you know. And yeah. So there's a lot of wisdom. I know after my divorce, I took like a three-week hiatus just so I could, I didn't have kids at that time, uh, but it, it was, it was good for me to take a little vacay, you know, and, and yeah, and dial it down head. and dial it down. Yeah. yeah. And then, then, okay, now I can transition because they, they think we're all going to do a group hug on day one of parenting coordination when you were parading witnesses in front of the court to hate on each other last week, you know, so let's, Let's be realistic about that, you know. Well, space and grace would be helpful in between those. I like that. Space and grace. Yeah. Any final comments or tips before we get your contact information and say goodbye? Buy the book. (laughs) Buy the (laughs) get the journal. Um, is that is that the full title of it? The journal? It's called I Am Non Impossible. It is only 63 pages. So it's very short. It's got, it's 12 weeks. So it takes you through a, a uh, lesson a week um, to practice by listening, you know, to some podcast episodes that we point to. And I want to hear from people that if they work through this, did it change their perspective on negotiation and dealing with a difficult co-parent? And even dealing with a parent that's not so difficult, but we just have different viewpoints about parenting. Mm. Yeah. Perfect. Rick? Yeah, we we have this, we, we try to help people be a non-impossible, and we give them tips and tools and strategies for how to deal with that impossible co-parent. Yeah. The other one would just will not or cannot do the right thing. So I've coined a new phrase. You are a yes. non-impossible. <laughs> Which I like you're, that. You're the good guy. <laughs> you're the, or at you're least the good you're, parent. or at least you're trying. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> Working on it. Mm-hmm. Be it's a non-impossible. I love that. Yes. So we'll have the um, non-impossible. We'll have a link for purchasing the non-impossible in the show notes. And can you just share again the name of your podcast? If you have websites you want to share sure. and anything else, it's Co-Parent Dilemmas. You can find us anywhere. We're on all the platforms, uh, or go to our website and listen at CP Dilemmas. Uh, If you want to email us a question that you want us to put on the show, it's 1234dilemma at gmail.com. 
Keep in mind, uh, Rick doesn't know how to spell dilemma, so it has one L and two M's. <laughs> yes. yes. My dyslexia kicks in. <laughs> so for That's our, very funny. For our poor spellers, it's D-I-L-E-M-M-A. Thanks, Thank Diane. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I say that all in fun. I say right. it in fun. He knows it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on our show, sharing that great process and, you know, your wisdom and guidance. And um, and for those listening, definitely check out their uh, their podcast. Uh, they really walk through different people's dilemmas. And it's 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 a very tangible way of listening to how to do it right and hearing what, other, and sometimes we hear better when we're listening to somebody else's problem right. uh, than we're, when we're listening to our sure. own. So tune into that. That's bound to help you. And again, thanks so much. And we'll be back again real soon with our next episode of All Things Parenting. Until then, you take care. You've been listening to our podcast, Getting Educated, Regulating Your Emotional Reactions, and it's been really helpful, yet you know you could do better, be better, and you're wanting and needing more support. That's where our coaching service is a game changer. We're here for you when you need us the most, ensuring you have all the tools and resources at your fingertips, guiding and supporting you to be more effective. Our free rapid relief call helps you gain a broader perspective, commit to your best next steps, and determine what coaching support is right for you. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call today. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.